Welcome to the important part, investing with Liz Young. I'm Liz Young, head of investment strategy at SoFi, here to help cut through the large amount of information out there about investing and get to the important part. With the help of my guests, you'll gain valuable insights, new perspectives, and the knowledge to confidently make your investment decisions. Hi, everybody, and happy new year. Happy 2023. Welcome back to the important part. This is a bonus episode, a bonus outlook episode. I did this last year, right around this time. I'll do another one in the middle of the year. And it's a time when I ask you to give me what the content should be. I took questions on Twitter. I got hundreds of questions, which I am so flattered and and so happy about. But it also means that everybody doesn't know what to do. (laughs) So so we're going to try to hash through some of that. And up front, I'm going to go through a quick review of what my outlook is for 2023. That document is still out there on the interwebs. You can go find it at SoFi.com and read through the entire thing, but I'll do just a quick recap of that. So let's dive right in. The title of my outlook for this year is This Ends One Way or Another. And let's be honest, 2022 was a real turd of a year. And I'm, I'm honestly tired of talking about all the negatives. So I'm going to cover the positives very quickly in 2022. Number one, it's over. Number two, cash has a yield. If we look at some of the other asset classes, cash has a yield. Bonds are more attractively priced than they've been in decades. And some of the excess was shaken out of equity markets. We were walking around with a lot of valuation excess because of many, many years of low interest rates. And lastly, the positive is that the chance of having another double-digit year of declines in stocks and bonds is minimal. It's not impossible, but it's improbable. So here's to hoping, wishing, and watching 2023 hopefully not turn out like 2022. Now, some of the sections of my outlook that I think are really important to highlight, and I want to just do this up front before I go into your Q&A, The first one that I continue to harp on, you're going to hear me say this over and over again. If you've been listening, you've heard me say it numerous times already in the last few months, respect the cycle. And what I mean by that is the business cycle. So the business cycle goes through phases. We have early phase, we have early expansion, we have mid, we have late, and then we have typically recession. And recession is what separates late cycle from early cycle. And then there are different behaviors that the market takes on and that the economy takes on at different points in the cycle. The most important thing to remember here is that stocks peak before the recession starts, and they typically bottom before it ends. So there's a leading indicator in stock prices that tell us what the market thinks is going to happen in the economy. Spoiler alert, I am in the recession camp for 2023. I think it would be very difficult to avoid. And although the Federal Reserve has not worked a recession into its projections, they never would do something like that. I think that it'd be very difficult to get from where we are in the late cycle behavior back to early cycle without a recession. And I won't cover all the reasons here why I don't think a recession needs to be the end of the world. Sometimes it can be healthy. Sometimes it's something, again, that just resets the cycle. The recession that we had early in 2022 did not reset the cycle. It didn't count. It didn't work. So in order to reset it, we probably have to have a more classic recession. The other thing that is really important to remember 
in resetting the cycle is that inflation falls. Clearly, we are fighting inflation. It has continued to prove itself a worthy opponent. And we're getting there. We're on the, we're on the right track. But once we transition from late cycle back into early cycle, it usually means that inflation has fallen and that particular problem should have taken care of itself. So another section that I think is important here, building off of that one, is that basically we can't have it both ways. Now, what I, I called the section calling a spade a spade or calling all spades. And basically, what I want to say here is that you can't expect to hurt demand, therefore reduce inflation, without creating collateral damage to consumption, or without creating collateral damage to revenue, or without creating collateral damage to earnings, and therefore collateral damage to the US economy. So you can't have inflation go down and not have some pain inflicted on other parts of either the corporate environment or the economy as a whole. And the environment that we're in, which is one of earnings revisions coming down, or we're still flat year over year in expectations for earnings, but I would expect that to show contraction sooner rather than later. So earnings coming down, demand coming down, we continue to have tightening monetary policy that seems unrelenting uh, and expectations that it will stay tight for longer. That is not an environment for multiple expansion. That is not a time when we are watering the seeds of PEs going up to astronomical levels. So we have to really manage our expectations there. And then one of the last things that I want to cover here is I already mentioned the recession in early 2022, which technically was a recession, meaning two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. Because it didn't count, we're now on the lookout for the one that does count. And this section in the outlook is called finding the one. So how do we find the one? I think that the big way that we will find the one or be able to confirm that it's the one that is actually going to reset the cycle is the labor market. Now, the labor market has not cracked yet. It's shown some signs of weakness in the sense that we've heard about layoff announcements, mostly in tech, but now that's starting to bleed into other sectors. We're seeing some uptick in continuing jobless claims, but we haven't seen it in the big kahuna data yet. So things like the unemployment rate, the jolts numbers, jobs added. We haven't seen a meaningful drop or a meaningful crack in that data yet. I do think that we will start to see that in the first quarter of 2023. So we want to watch the labor market to confirm that it is, in fact, the one recession that can reset the cycle. And that would give us the irrefutable evidence that it does. And then one other thing that I want to mention here is if and when the labor market weakens, Obviously, this is not something to cheer. This is also not something that consumers will cheer for. And that's when we might start to see consumer spending really pull back. We start to see consumer behavior change. Consumer sentiment may change. And labor is the one thing that if you just think about it from your own perspective, if you are beginning to get worried that you either may not keep your job or if you lose your job, that it will be much harder to find a new one you pull back typically. So it's really just intuitive of what happens if and when certain parts of the economy actually start to, to show stress. 
And then much lastly, I'm going to cover some of this in the Q&A, but I talked about, okay, then what do we do about it in 2023? I talked about Fama French. That is a model, an old, old model that you can learn in a lot of textbooks, or if you are silly enough to go through, (laughs) or crazy enough, I should say, to go through the CFA program, you can learn about it there too. But basically, it's a model that suggests that small caps should outperform large caps, that value should outperform growth over longer periods of time, that there's a premium that is awarded to smaller companies versus larger companies and a premium that is awarded to companies that are trading at reasonable valuations versus ones that are trading at higher valuations. Now, that theory has not worked, admittedly, for the better part of the last two decades. I think that in 2023, it could start to emerge again as something to watch. And when we think about just where rates are, what that has done to valuations, and what it's done to the opportunity set for multiple expansion, that's a big reason why value could outperform growth. And if we have an environment that looks like a classic recession, you probably have classic sectors that lead out of it, which is typically value sectors, cyclical sectors, small cap stocks. So keep an eye on that and remember it, learn it, and then remember it as you look for opportunities in 2023. Okay, on to the Q&A. Now, you guys, I got over 200 comments on my tweet looking for your questions. And first and foremost, I want to say thank you so much for engaging. Thank you so much for all of your excellent questions. I got so many really, really good questions. I obviously cannot answer all 200 of them here, but I am going to try to pull out some themes uh, that can check the box of a few questions at a time, and then I'm going to take some specific questions that I think everybody can benefit from just thinking about and, and hearing my answer to. So the first big theme that continued to show up, this is probably the most popular theme that showed up in the questions, is about dividend payers. So dividend paying stocks. People asked about dividend aristocrats. I'll talk about what that is. People asked about certain ETFs. How should we look for ETFs that we want to invest in if we're looking for dividend payers? Now, let's define aristocrat first. So you'll hear the term dividend aristocrats. A dividend aristocrat is a company that consistently pays a dividend. And that means that they're doing it every year. Okay, so this isn't a company that just started a dividend this year, consistently pays a dividend, and annually increases the size of its payout. So you want to see patterns, you want to see sustainable dividend payouts, you want to see durability of those dividends, because it's easier than to set your expectations for the future on what that company may produce. So that's an aristocrat, a dividend aristocrat. Now, when you're looking at what types of companies you want to invest in, a dividend aristocrat would clearly be better than many other types of dividend payers, some of which can be considered just high dividend yielding. Those can be in the form of ETFs or companies. But remember, when you talk about a yield, a yield is the function of whatever the payout is, so the income, and the price. So a high yield may also be a function of a low price, which distorts the yield to look much higher. Or you can have a company that is paying irregularly large dividends to attract investors or because of some sort of extraordinary event, but there may not be consistency, in which case it's possible that that company cannot sustain its dividend payout and could cut it, especially in a period of economic stress or market stress. Now, 2022 was a 
good year for dividend payers, which is, I think, why I got this question so much, because we're having a little bit of recency bias and saying, okay, dividend payers did really well in 2022 compared to the broader market, certainly compared to growth stocks. Now, the beginning of 2023 could be the same, but let's remember why dividends worked in 2022. It was their low volatility, generally speaking. So, and that's a year of high volatility. Obviously, we had quite a few different lows in the market. So low volatility and dividend payers was a benefit. They're generating income in a rising rate environment. That was a benefit. They're typically overweight defensive sectors like consumer staples and utilities. That was a benefit. And they exhibit a value bias because of that sector weight. So all of the winds were really blowing in their favor. Now, some of those winds will still be blowing in their favor in 2023, at least in the beginning of 2023. So it doesn't mean that you should sell out of dividend funds. In fact, I think that they're a great allocation to have in the portfolio. But just remember that the tailwinds that they experienced in 2022 may not be quite as strong all the way through 2023, because this is a different environment. So the last question in this particular topic of how do we screen then, how do we decide which dividend ETFs to purchase? I'm not going to name any specific ones. I need to make sure I maintain my objectivity, but I'll tell you a couple things that I would look for when choosing. So there's a lot out there, and this is something that is available to everybody online. You can literally go online and search dividend ETFs. You can look at performance from 2022. I, I mean, I did it last night just to see what was available to the average investor. And there are lists of the best performing dividend ETFs in 2022. There are lists of what each one is. There, there's descriptions of them. So this is all readily available for you. But because there are so many out there, make sure that you do your homework. Look for ones that screen for companies, and I said this before, screen for companies that consistently pay dividends and or increase their dividends. Avoid purely high-yield dividend funds because they can be skewed by the price. I would also avoid, at this juncture, specific country ETFs outside the U.S. Now, obviously, we're going to have a U.S. bias in a lot of these dividend ETFs, but there are ETFs out there that are focusing on specific countries. I would probably avoid those because you don't want to take single country risk in an environment where we've got global recession risk. And then there are probably some that also focus on specific sectors. I think diversification is the key here. You're buying these for the shareholder-friendly reason and for the dividend reason and for the low volatility reason. You're not buying them for sector or regional exposure. You can do that elsewhere in different ETFs and in different ways in the portfolio. But remember, a little international exposure can be okay. It doesn't have to be just a purely U.S. fund. I just want it to be diversified. And the reason I say that is because a lot of dividend-paying stocks are actually based in Europe, particularly in the U.K. So you may find some international ETFs that have U.K. exposure. Okay, question number two. So the other big theme, aside from dividend payers, that I got was about energy. Not just the commodity, but energy stocks, What's the outlook in 2023? Energy as a commodity is obviously a volatile component of any investment portfolio, and it's it's a volatile indicator to watch. It can be something that we watch from a macro perspective in the sense that most recessions are preceded by a spike in energy prices. I think we had that in 2022. And now prices have come down. They're still slightly above where they were a year ago, but they've come down quite a bit. If we do confirm a recession in 2023, oil prices likely fall again. This is a cyclical sector. 
If we confirm a recession, you would expect that demand falls and activity falls across the globe. So oil prices likely suffer because of that. But they are not likely to suffer as much as they did in 2020 when we had an entire shutdown. If you look at how they suffered in 2008, of course, there was pressure, downward pressure on oil prices in the 2008 crisis, but not nearly as much as in 2020. A couple other things that are supporting oil prices. There's a government commitment, a U.S. government commitment to buying up to 3 million barrels in January. There is this increasing movement toward renewable energy. Millions of people across the globe dealing with energy shortages. So there's tons of demand still, and we continue to hear about shocks, whether from natural disasters or weather patterns, keeping that demand high. War is still raging on between Russia and the Ukraine, which is constricting supply for a lot of nations. Prices have a bit of a floor for a while. So do I think that they're going to absolutely fall out of bed if we confirm a recession? No. So I think there is some limited downside in prices. And again, I mentioned prices are still slightly above where they were a year ago. The other thing that's important here is that energy companies have been pretty shareholder friendly through 2022, and I would expect that to continue. And what I mean by that is they do pay dividends, so they have a higher dividend yield than the the broader index. The dividend yield for energy in the S&P is about 3.8% versus the S&P dividend yield of 1.8%, so that's helpful. And they also engaged in a lot of buybacks in 2022 that could continue as well in 2023. Some other factors that are at play here, supply and demand rules the day in energy. And the U.S. stock of crude oil is 275 million barrels below the 10-year average. So if supply is constricted, prices stay elevated. U.S. field production of oil is still below pre-COVID levels, just narrowly, but it's still below pre-COVID levels. So I think that energy is an okay place to be in 2023. Do I think it's going to outperform as much and as as widely as it did in 2022? Probably not. I do think that there's going to be some other sectors that can carry their weight a bit more. But I still think that energy is an okay place to be to diversify your exposure, to get a dividend, to have some shareholder-friendly companies, and the drawdown may be less severe than in a typical recession. Okay, question number three. This is a specific question I'm going to read. This came from John Warak, and it says, you have mentioned TLT and IEF as a way to diversify, but are we better off in individual bonds versus the ETF since the value of the ETF is really a bet on the future direction of interest rates? John, this is a great question. This is something that I think a lot of people probably also wonder themselves. So um, just to define what we're talking about here. TLT is the ticker for an ETF of 20 plus year treasuries. IEF is the ticker for an ETF of seven to 10 year treasuries. And then I've also talked about an ETF with ticker SHY, which is for one to three year treasuries. Okay. So mainly in that one, I'm talking about the two year, but so we've got a short term, we've got an intermediate term, and then we've got a long term. As an individual investor, here's the first thing I would say, buying Usually you're buying in lower dollar amounts than big institutions or foundations who are typically buying individual bonds and doing that in really big dollar amounts because it's typically a lower dollar amount and it's just not as accessible and you don't want to go up against some of those bigger blocks of securities with a smaller block uh, of a purchase because you 
typically don't get as good of a price. So as an individual investor, I would almost always say just use an ETF. Again, it's not as accessible of a market as equities, so you can't think of it the same way. It's not as if you just go buy an individual bond the same way that you would go buy a share of, of a certain stock. There are intricacies to how you might structure the portfolio. Bonds are also not something that you want to do swing trading in, and they can carry higher fees, especially if you're doing it on an individual basis. If the goal is to target a certain duration, and the recommendations that John is referring to, that is what I was doing. So targeting a certain duration because of the movement in rates and the movement in yields and the movement in valuations over the course of this year, if the goal is to target a certain duration, that's for a reason. It's not necessarily for a long-term allocation. So those are a little bit more short-term trades. Again, I would do that in an ETF because it's easier to get in and out of. It is uh, something that you can still get, again, that, that nice diversification in a fund rather than trying to get in and out of an individual security. And then to the last point about ETFs are a bet on the future direction of interest rates. I would argue that any treasury purchase right now, because of the environment, is dependent first on your opinion of where rates are headed. That's just a function of, of what this environment looks like and what we're expecting from the Fed. The second function is your fear level. So you buy a treasury first, depending on what you think of what's going to happen with rates. You buy it second based on how afraid you are of perhaps a recession, in which case you likely buy longer term treasuries. And third, on the strength of the U.S. versus other sovereign nations. And that picture has changed a bit over the last two to three months. Things that have come out of Japan, things that have come out of other central banks around the globe. Many central banks are tightening, some on a faster schedule than the U.S. So that has changed the relative value of different sovereign bonds. However, treasuries continue to offer a higher yield than many other nations, regardless of what's happening with their central bank. And although, yes, our balance sheet is big, we've got deficits that don't make don't make us look like the, the greatest uh, borrower right now. However, I still would argue that the U.S. is more stable, and, and you could say that we're maybe, you know, the best country on a bad planet, but more stable than your other options. The last thing I would say here is that if you really want to build a bond ladder, and you can look up what that means, if you want to build a bond ladder and match your liabilities with maturities, individual bonds may work. But that requires quite a bit of capital. It removes the flexibility to rotate in and out of the asset class in different environments. And I would argue that this is an environment where you want to still maintain that flexibility. So thank you, John, for your question. Okay, question number four. At what range of S&P 500 do you think is a good time to make an entry and start piling into stocks like tech, financials, and energy? Excellent question. I'm going to run through a lot of numbers here. So if you have a notepad next to you, pick up a pen and maybe write these down so that you can follow along. Let's review very quickly levels on the S&P 500. On January 3rd of 2022, we hit a high of 4,796. That was the rearview mirror high. That was the highest point we hit all year. On October 12th, we hit the most recent low of 3,577, okay? We are today, I'm recording this on January 3rd, we're somewhere just above 3,800 on the S&P. The bear rally from October 12th to November 30th took us up to 4080, 
on the S&P and was about a 14% rally. We've given up 6% since then, but the resistance level at around 4,100 continues to hold, okay? So then the question is, all right, what's the bottomy level? Or where do you where do you start to think things are attractive? I will never call a bottom because I will be wrong. But where do you start to think things are attractive? There's a couple different ways that I look at this. First of which is, if we are going to confirm a recession, the lowest we got in a drawdown in 2022 was 25% down. If we're going to confirm a recession, I think that we need to get to at least closer to 30% or slightly beyond 30% down. So 30% drawdown from that January peak would be 33.57 on the S&P. That's only about 10 to 11% from here. That's not very far away. So that's the good news. I mentioned earlier in this podcast that recessions don't have to be the end of the world. We did a lot of work in 2022. We drew down a lot. So if to get back down to a recessionary drawdown, we only have to go down another 10% in the grand scheme of things, that is not that bad. Now, of course, it could go beyond that, but I just want to put that in perspective. Another way to look at this is by valuations. So if you look at the forward earnings, the forward P.E., right now is about 16.7 times. In October, at that October low, it got down to 15.3 times. If we need to get back down to that valuation level and earnings estimates stay steady, which I think is highly unlikely, but if we get back down to 15.3 times, that would take us to an S&P of 34.27, okay? So 30% down from peak is 33.57, 15.3 times forward earnings would be 3427. So let's say somewhere between 33 and 3400 is a reasonable expectation if a moderate recession occurs. But remember markets always overshoot. So we likely get below that if the, if that ends up being the reasonable expectation they probably overshoot that a bit. Here's the thing, it doesn't matter. There is no point in trying to figure out what the actual number is, when it's going to occur, what level it's going to occur at. I will start to nibble on sectors that I've been bearish on if and when we cross 3,500. And let me tell you why, because you might be thinking, why would you start then if you think it's going down to 33 to 3,400? First of all, the sectors that I would nibble on are consumer discretionary. I'd look at semiconductors. I'd look at cyclicals like financials, industrials, and small caps. Here's why. In the long run, if you buy when the market is down 25 to 30% and hold it through the recovery on the other side, that's still a really good buy. Even if it goes down to 35% before it recovers, you bought it at, let's say, down 27%, hypothetically. That's a good buy. So it's up to you at that point as an investor to hang on and stick to your own thesis. Okay, question number five. This comes from Francisco Jimenez. I think I'm saying that correctly. His question is, If this market is more similar to the high inflation 1970s and 1980s, why are people not visualizing that this could take five years and the market can get undervalued, such as S&P 500 at 2000? Is there something different now that's not going to let that happen? Thank you so much for this question. Okay, let's compare and contrast. Now, First, that may not be the consensus view, meaning that this takes five years, but it is a real risk. And and five years is just kind of an arbitrary number, but it is a real risk that this stagflationary environment lasts much longer than consensus believes, or that 
to use my own title, I think in 2023, this ends one way or another, there is a risk that it doesn't end in 2023 and that it drags on. My view is that it likely does end in 2023. And we'll dig through why that is. But there are a lot of people out there, some of whom I really respect their opinions. There are people out there who think that it could drag on much longer. All right. So let's talk about the recessions of the 70s and 80s. The recession in the 1970s, this was like 73 to 75-ish. It was a result of, and I'm oversimplifying here in the interest of time, a result of the Vietnam War, deficits that were built up because of the war. There was a spike in oil prices. Gold stopped being pegged to the U.S. dollar. So there's some similarities in the sense of there's a war going on and an energy crisis as a result. Different in the sense that we are somewhat removed from that war. It's happening between Russia and Ukraine. We're not involved in it like we were involved in the Vietnam War. And we are, maybe more importantly, we are much more energy independent in the U.S. today than we were back then. So we produce quite a bit of the energy that we consume here, which insulates us from some of those global crises, at least more so than it did in the 1970s. Also in the 1970s, consumers were spending about 9% of their discretionary income on energy because of that big spike in prices. We're only at about 4.5% today. So that's a good sign as well. Consumers, yes, they're spending more than they were a year and a half ago on energy, but they're not extended outrageously so to a 9% of discretionary income expenditure. Okay, so in the 1980s, that was a double dip recession. That recession was largely Fed-induced and is now viewed largely as a policy error. The error being that they didn't get a hold of inflation enough from the jump they did this sort of stop-start cycle of raising rates and then pausing and then cutting rates and then going back. And they never really got a handle on it. Inflation didn't get down to a manageable level. It created a larger problem in the future that still needed to be solved. So there was a double-dip recession. The second recession, painfully, took care of it. Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to avoid a recession. However, this Fed, Jerome Powell's Fed, has cited that error as a specific thing it's trying to avoid this time around. So asking what's different, this Fed sees what happened in the 80s and wants to not make that same mistake. They're open to over-tightening. They say that uh, there's a bigger risk in not doing enough. So I would expect that that is probably the biggest difference here. Now, it, that doesn't prevent the market from falling further than people think, but I do think it helps prevent the problem from persisting as long as it did in the 1980s. Okay, last and certainly not least, this is question number six. It comes from Adam Kiesel. Thank you, Adam, for your question. He says, what's your best guess? At what point does the unemployment rate, currently 3.7%, eclipse the CPI, currently 7.1%, if it does at all in 2023? He says, to me, this delta, currently 4%, so the difference, has been the biggest thing to watch for the Fed. It's the crux of the dual mandate. All right. And then somebody responded to him <laughs> and said, May 2023. And I'm going to talk about why they said that. But first, let's quickly, just for anybody who's not aware what the dual mandate is, the Fed is responsible for number one, maintaining price stability, and number two, maintaining maximum employment. Okay. Obviously, they've been overly focused on price stability for obvious reasons. Uh, clearly, inflation has been an issue. It has been and remains my take that if we don't take care of the inflation problem, we end up with all kinds of other problems anyway. So we have to fight it. They've been right to focus on that. Okay, 
Scott Hendricks replied to Adam and said, May 2023, because I think, Scott, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so tweet me if I'm wrong, but he said May 2023 because that's when the market is showing the terminal rate to be reached. So the market is assuming terminal rate is about 5% on the Fed funds rate, but it also assumes, the market also assumes that we stay at that 5% level through summer. So here's the thing. At some point this year, the unemployment rate is likely to eclipse the CPI number, both because unemployment rises. I think unemployment will rise much slower than CPI falls, mostly because CPI will fall faster. The Fed projections also assume that the two lines will cross at some point this year. But the Fed projections also say that the Fed funds rate will still be at 5% at the end of the year, which means that they actually will not be satisfied with the simple crossing of the lines. So don't take too simplistic of a view. That's what I would warn people, that just because CPI gets below a certain level or gets below the unemployment rate, if the unemployment rate is 4% and CPI is 3.9, 3.9 is still not good. 3.9 is still not two. And unemployment at 4% is really not that concerning for the Fed in the grand scheme of what prior recessions have looked like. I would venture a guess that the Fed is probably okay with unemployment getting above 4%, maybe even okay with it being at 4.5%. CPI is still going to be the main enemy. So as long as CPI continues to fall, and once it gets, let's say, maybe below 3%, then they might be satisfied. But this is not just a one line crosses the other, and then we wash our hands of this, and the Fed's going to be happy. Also, the Fed stopping their hiking cycle does not mean they're going to start a cutting cycle. So if they intend to hold rates higher for longer, this could be a year where we're watching economic data change and rates, the Fed funds rate, not change much. And that is going to be a real brain buster for all of us. But it's very, very possible. And it continues to be what the Fed is signaling. My take on that, my honest opinion, is that I do believe that economic data is going to weaken a bit faster than the Fed is projecting, and I think it's going to weaken in the first and second quarter of this year, particularly in the first quarter if we look at labor numbers. And if that happens, and if the market falls in tandem with that, and let's say we also have a bunch of earnings revisions downward that are showing a contraction year over year for 2023 earnings, that likely pulls the Fed's reaction function forward and makes it much more difficult for them to hold rates at such a restrictive level through the end of the year. So that's my two cents. That is it, folks. That is it. I, again, thank you so much for your questions. I may actually pull some of these in future episodes, and we're going to try to do it, some of that on Market Call, for those of you who watch and listen to us there. So please stay tuned, please continue engaging, and please ask your questions. It's really important not only for me to be able to see what everybody's wondering about, what their biggest concerns are, because it does shape the way that I talk about my commentary. I want to make sure that I'm giving you the information that is most relevant to you. Uh, But I also think that it's useful for other investors to see what everybody else is thinking and what everybody else is worried about. So it's been a great community. 2022 was a great year of that community. Hopefully 2023 is a better year year for returns and continues to be a great year for the community of investors. Thank you all. For more from me, check out my weekly column on the markets and economy every Thursday morning on the SoFi blog at SoFi.com slash blog. And follow me on Twitter for daily takes on the market at Liz Young Strap. 
The Important Part is produced by SoFi in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Sarah Lee Kane, our producer, Brian Rivers, our production manager, and Adam Raimonda, our editor and sound engineer. SoFi can't guarantee future financial performance and past performance is no guarantee. This podcast should be used for informational purposes only and not deemed as a recommendation. Our automated investing is via SoFi Wealth, LLC, and is a registered investment advisor. Our active investing is via SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. For additional disclosures related to the SoFi Invest platforms, please visit sofi.com slash legal.